Jeg følte jeg hadde noe å ordne Så jeg kom som en komet inn i skole Norge Folk lo da jeg ville starte podcast Vel, det har ikke gått så verst Vi er det nye vinn, yeah, vi er det neste store Må gjøre det for kids å lage verdens beste skole Dyp moralsk forpliktelse, ikke tror jeg spøker Nå starter vi et forlag og begynner å gi ut bøker Boka, hvordan skape en god skole er ute 5. desember kan bestilles i nettbutikken på www.ebsn.no Et bedre skole-Norge Velkommen til Et bedre skole-Norge. Det er en glede å ha med en ny co-host, og det er Kjersti Norman. Hun er kjent fra Elvebakken videregående skole i Oslo, og har også vært faglederen til Stian på Stien, så dere har hørt henne i en tidligere episode. I dag har vi fått med selveste Shane Sofir, som har skrivit flere bøker. Tar du det her fra Kjersti? Et bedre skole i Norge. Det kan jeg. Shane, welcome. Warm welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me to come. It's fantastic to have you on. We love your work. You've written the two books, The Listening Leader and Street Data. And I would love that you would start please telling the listeners something about yourself and what you're passionate about. Great question. I have grown up here in California in the Bay Area, but my my people come from Ireland and Eastern Europe. I'm of Irish and, and Jewish descent, and so from Poland, actually, I recently learned from the Ukraine, the Safirs were from the Ukraine, and um, as well as Alsace-Lorraine and um, Poland. And my great-great-grandfather actually immigrated to Oakland from Ireland, and so there's a real um, meaningful nature to raising my children in the city where folks immigrated in the late 1800s. I'm also a mom of two children, a 16-year-old and a 13-year-old, and uh, continue to learn through this pandemic what it means to parent in just really complex, you know, educational conditions, as you all know, and help the kids navigate so much uncertainty in the world, so much complexity. Um, And then on the professional side, I was a high school teacher at the beginning of my career. I taught social studies and later English, um, including a year internationally in Jordan in the Middle East. And, and then a principal, a founding principal of a high school. And I think um, even though now the work I do is with adults, adult learning, writing and, you know, professional development, coaching, all of that, I would say my top passion really is, is classroom pedagogy for adolescents. I loved teaching adolescents. This is the peak of my career. <laughs> And that's not where I get to spend a lot of my time now, but every every chance I get to interact with and listen to young people, they just have so much wisdom and so much creativity and innovation about how to solve some of these problems that we wrestle with in the education system. Well, that uh, tells uh, the listening of, of uh, the young people, but you are directing messages to the leaders as well. You wrote this fantastic mm-hmm. book about the listening leader. How does a listening leader really lead? It's a great question. I had to go back to the book because it's been a minute since I wrote it. <laughs> it came out in 2017, The Listening Leader. And um, so if you don't mind, I'll read a passage that I think kind of encapsulates how I thought about that question. That listening is a vital and overlooked tool and the cornerstone of leading across differences in race, gender, culture, socioeconomic status, language and age, among other factors. That listening leaders use our ears and our eyes 
to understand where people are coming from. We lead with questions more than answers. And we demonstrate care, curiosity, and regard for every person who crosses our path. And then lastly, I think listening leadership for me is an orientation toward sort of collegiality and collaboration and definitely toward equity, toward creating inclusive, equitable communities in which every learner, child and adult gets what they need to thrive. Not necessarily the same resources, but the kind of supports and resources that they need to really thrive. Well, we all say that we we listen, we're training to listen, but what is really listening all about? Why is it so important? And what are the first steps to strengthen listening skills? It's such an important question. I think as I researched for the listening leader, it was like, you know, pulling a thread and continuing to unravel these layers of response really to your question that I think sometimes we position listening as this soft skill or this, you know, kind of simple, you know, something we can't measure or we don't put a lot of value in. But the more I dug into the research, the more I understood how incredibly complex it is to listen well. Right, that it's it's a technology. There are all these technical components to listening well, but then it's also very adaptive, and it's about kind of how we are with each other, our ways of being in the world. And with the second book, with Street Data, I was able to understand more through research, but also through experience, how much listening is rooted in indigenous ways of being. Um, and in various non-Western cultures as like a core kind of tenet of how to be in community with people. Indigenous elders taught me, um, Coastal Salish folks that I learned from on Vancouver Island that, you know, listening, it's not just this sort of passive act and it's not just about our ears, that it's really about absorbing on this like cellular level what's happening around you. And that takes a lot of practice, right? It's actually not how we're trained in kind of dominant culture or Western <laughs> ways of being. It's not how we're trained to show up with each other or in schools. So it takes a lot of discipline and a lot of practice to build those neural pathways, I think. So what would be the first steps to, to strengthen these listening skills in a different way? I think the very first step is one that's anathema to a lot of us in education, which is to just slow ourselves down, to really slow down. And in a sense, this maps to all the emergent work around mindfulness in the field, right? That's because I don't know if this is true in Norway, but in the States and in Canada, where I do a lot of work, mindfulness is kind of seeping into school practices and, and system practices. So the idea of slowing down, really slowing our breath, right? really attuning to what's happening inside ourselves first and foremost. So a lot of the ways in which listening gets distorted is because we are triggered or activated by something that someone said, right? And then the lack of awareness about how we're feeling triggered comes out in a distorted response, it comes out in anger, it comes out in frustration, whatever, all the human emotions, right? And so it's not about eradicating those emotions, but it is about slowing down so we can attune. Oh, this is what's coming up for me right now, right? I'm feeling powerless. I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling vulnerable. And then being able to act from a place of awareness rather than of fear or anxiety. I think the other piece of sort of how to begin to move toward listening leadership is this notion from the book of mature empathy, that we really situate as a goal for ourselves the capacity to stand in the shoes of other people, right? To sit with their experience in all of its, you know, beauty and joy and all of its pain. 
And that's hard, right? Like, I think it's easier sometimes to anesthetize ourselves from all the pain that's happening in the world, especially in the last couple of years. But if we can cultivate the stance of mature empathy, really try to understand where folks are coming from, it can be so transformative. So what you're saying, actually, is uh, listening to others, but also listening to ourselves, to what's exactly. going on. Mm. Exactly. That's, that's the message. Because there's a saying, we don't see people as they are, we see them as we are. So how can we be aware that we are really listening and not just picking up what we really want to hear? What fits in with our imagination of the world? I love that question. And as I thought about it, it reminded me of the, the research or the concept of mirror and window that comes from Emily Stiles and Ruth um, Rudine Sims Bishop. So the idea that we're always kind of looking in the mirror at who we are, but also looking out through the window at who others are. And I think it's really, you know, your point is so well taken. It's very dialectical. It's about how are we in relationships with others Yes, but that begins with the kind of relationship we have with ourselves. So the attunement again to self, but then also the attunement to the other person's body language, to the other person's tone, to the other person's nonverbal communication, which the research I found for Listening Leaders shows that the vast majority of what we're conveying when we're engaged in any sort of emotional communication, the vast majority is not about the words we say right? It's like 39% tone, 55% nonverbal. So people don't even realize that we're constantly subconsciously communicating through our facial expressions, through our tone. And whether we do that in a way that's, you know, invokes well-being, that's positive and warm and invitational, or that shuts people down, or sometimes somewhere in between, it's really a source of power. You know, I think cultivating nonverbal kind of awareness and literacy is super important. And then finally, I would say to your question about we don't see people as they are, we see them as we are. And how can we know what's evidence of good listening? We have to ask. We have to seek feedback. How did that interaction we just had feel? Did you feel really listened to? If not, tell me how I could do this differently. And I want to say that those questions are just as important and powerful for me in my personal life as in my professional life. Right? So as a parent who's striving constantly to improve my parenting, to decolonize my parenting, to be able to ask the kids those questions is really important. Just a sidetrack. We just had a huge survey in Norway about the gap in education between boys and girls. And the boys are losing in, in uh, learning. And one suggestion was that boys should start school later due to their immaturity. What do you think about that? How do we listen to th those needs? I think it's such a fascinating question because, you know, we're in this cultural movement or this cultural sort of groundswell right now where gender, at least in the States, is really being deconstructed and unpacked. And there's a lot of work around gender spectrum and, you know, non-binary non identity. And as a parent of a transgender child, I think I'm learning all the time about how gender is socially constructed and, and yet how gender identity is so important to one's sense of well-being in the world. And so I guess my first thought is that a policy that is gendered in this way could miss a lot of kids who don't identify with the traditional kind of boy or girl identities and, and could marginalize inadvertently, right? Kids who don't um, fall into that, that sort of spectrum in that way. I think that said, I personally really love the idea of flexible design 
in schooling. So structures like looping, right, having the teacher have a cohort of kids across at least two grades, if not more, so that you build those relationships in year one and you can just hit the ground running year two. Um, Interest-based courses, I think, are really important, right? Having young people choose into what they're learning rather than always being forced to take a standardized curriculum. You know, I don't think that learning is, is developmental and that looks different for different kids, right? Like we can't have one size fits all structures in schooling. So multi-age, you know, class scheduling, things like that. So I like the idea. I just would want to really play with and kind of explore the gender implications. So listen to what's going on with the, the kids themselves. Let's skip to your other book. It's about street data. I've been reading the street data book, uh, some of it, and I just love the way you kind of differentiate the different types of data because I always learned at the principal school that you should use work database and everything, but you say you also have to check if the data is uh, valuable. And you also have these three categories. Can you please tell the listeners very short? Yeah, I mean, database has come to mean something so narrow. And so in the framework, the levels of data, the way I talk about it is that the satellite data, if you think of Google Maps or some kind of, you know, mapping device, the satellite data is that data that hovers at the 30,000 foot level. We're looking down at the continents and the oceans and we see these shapes. And that would be the data like test scores, like maybe graduation rates, like attendance data. And when we say we're being data-driven, usually that's what we're thinking about, right? At least in the last couple of decades, there's been a very strong pendulum swing toward quantitative data, or what I call satellite data. In the framework, the next level down is map data. So now you're you're sitting above, let's say, a city in Norway. I don't know your cities well. And you can see the intersection of streets, and you can see freeway off-ramps, and you can see maybe cars driving. So you have a little bit more texture, but it's not right next to the student, right? So here we might have student perception data, for example, a survey that tells us that 30% of our learners don't have a strong connection to an adult in the building. Okay, that's really important. But why is that true? Who is that true for? Why is that true? What's the experience at a classroom level that's generating a sense of disconnection for students? That we can only learn by getting down on the street level. And we go back to our map analogy. Now we're in front of a house. We can see the address plate. We can see the door. We know where to park. Right? It's very vivid. It's very technicolor. And in a school setting, of course, that is what we can gather qualitatively through deep listening, through observation, um, through really positioning ourselves as ethnographers, whose role isn't just to do things, but to actually study the environment around us, to study the student experience and the adult experience. This is so great. My experience sometimes have been that uh, that if you use too little street data or if you generalize the street data too much, then you also kind of miss. So, so I've been stuck in that trap, if you see. But I have this idea that if you make the teachers gather street data from uh, students and put it in a OneNote table, it has to be according to the laws and everything, of course. But if you like collect data about the students' strengths, interests, what types of assessments they are good at and so forth, then you could kind of make this street database that the other teachers could benefit from because it would take so short amount of time for the other teachers to understand what's working with the different students. My first question is, 
do you think something like that could work? And the other question is, do you know of anyone who's working that way? I love the idea. I don't know OneNote very well, but I think it's a great idea to have a collective space for street data gathering and sharing. I can't think of anyone who's using that particular technology or approach, but I think it's really important that it's not just the outcome of having that data collected, right? It's also about the process of gathering the data and the kind of listening. And so it's so important that part of that is that students have a voice in self-assessment, right? That we're asking them those beautiful questions. What are your strengths? What are your interests? What types of assessments help you the most? You know, what types of assessments do you struggle with? And I think it's a tough nut to crack. How do you codify or document that kind of data? Like, I'm still working on that, to be honest. That's emergent in my practice, is how do you kind of capture and systematize that qualitative data that doesn't, it doesn't generate a number necessarily, right? <laughs> But I'll get back to you in six months when I figure that out. <laughs> I'm definitely working okay. on it. But it's, it's super important, I think, that young people have a voice in that, in that process. I just have a question, uh, Shane. In collecting the street data, there are many ways of how to collect street data. Could you could you give some examples of how we how we can collect them? Yeah, for sure. So I think the kind of not simplest, but the most foundational practice that we teach is empathy interviews. And there's a lot written about that, you know, usually is connected with design thinking. And so learning to sit down one on one and really practice that deep embodied listening that we talked about earlier have a handful of questions, four or five questions, um, and then capture the data that could be captured through an audio clip, it could be captured through video with permission, or it could just be that you're writing notes. Super powerful. I mean, even one empathy interview can be so illuminating, right, on gaps in our thinking or our practices. I think uh, a little bit more complex would be something like a Kiva panel, which I wrote about in The Listening Leader, which comes from Indigenous Ways of Being. It's a kind of surfacing. Uh, it's usually about six people from the community who share different, have different perspectives on a dilemma or a, a core issue for the community. And then a very structured way of elevating all those voices and allowing listeners not to ask questions, but to turn to each other and sort of say, what did you hear? What stood out to you? And then what meaning do you make of that? And I've had the opportunity, the real privilege to facilitate Kiva panels of students in front of adults. And man, every time I've done it, it's just radically changed the conversation. I mean, the level of like emotion and vulnerability and courage young people show and the way that that sh forces a shift in adults thinking. So there's that. And then there's so many others in the book that I write about from shadowing a student is a big practice, right? Cogenerative dialogue is something that Chris Emden writes about. I just am making a video about that. I can share with you all soon. That's um, I just think it's a brilliant practice. He talks about it, teacher with students, but I think you can also use it as at the adult level, like principal with teachers or superintendent with principals. Um, so those are a few. I hope that's helpful. I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole of this, but there's there's many, many in the book. I just uh, think this is so great. But sometimes when you collect street data, you might get some responses you didn't uh, wish for. Do you have any tips? So back in the listening leader, my colleague, Matt Alexander, whom I founded the high school with that I was principal of, um, he wrote a chapter on listening to students. I don't know if y'all have had a chance to read that, but it's a beautiful chapter. And I think the beginning, the first section says something like listening to students, even when it's hard to hear. And I do feel like you're, you're onto something here that, you know, 
we can wring our hands about data and, and street data, but at the end of the day, the question really is, are we ready to hear what young people have to say? Because young people are truth tellers and they're gonna come out with truth <laughs> about our practice and our systems, whether we wanna hear it or not. I think for me, it comes back to that mindfulness we talked about earlier and our ability to slow down, to recognize any feelings that are coming up, um, to allow those to be there. So I have a practice I do in meditation that's a naming, like this feels hard, this feels hard. I feel sad hearing this, right? Not naming to the student, but naming internally. Um, so that again, that emotion doesn't get projected onto the young person and we can still receive what they have to say, right? And then really exploring for yourself, well, what's coming up for me around this feedback? Like what vulnerability is it touching in me to hear this hard feedback about my classroom or my school? And being curious, what can I learn from this? What do I have to learn from this? So important that we do this in community. So we're talking to colleagues and we're able to get through the feeling part, not with the young person, but with another adult, and then take that inquiry stance so that it becomes something that we can learn from. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, because one thing is to collect the street data. Another thing is what do we do with them? How do we Absolutely. sort them and, and what do we do afterwards? What is the next step? Oh my goodness. Well, I mean, my, my friend and colleague, Denise, who I teach a street data course with, um, I quoted her in the, in the conclusion of the book, and it's so important, see if I can find this, that we don't stop at listening, right? It's not that we listen and say, oh, thank you so much for sharing your ideas, Yeah. yeah. right? Yeah. That would be doing a disservice. So Denise talks about how that it requires we first listen deeply But all that means little if we don't act on what we've learned, right? And so we have to ask ourselves these questions. What am I doing to demonstrate that I'm listening and trusting those I've listened to? How am I showing and modeling that I value their feedback, right? And in the book, I have tried to operationalize that through a cycle, a change cycle that I call the equity transformation cycle. And listening is the beginning. Uncovering is the second phase where we really slow down to analyze the street data. But the third phase is really what you're opening um, a window to talk about, which is reimagine. And reimagine is something that with fidelity, we do with the people we've listened to. So whoever we've gathered the street data from, we create a design table that is welcoming, that's inviting, and that's collaborative to think with those people about the solutions or the ideas. And you refer to Glennon Doyle and uh, We Can Do Hard Things, her concept that is going really, really wide. What do you think is the hardest thing we need to do in changing education? Honestly, I know people can't see me right now, but I think it's all up here. It's all about freeing our imaginations. I mean, I feel like the last couple of decades in the States and other Western contexts, we've gotten what I call in the book is the incarceration of the imagination. We've gotten trapped inside these extremely narrow concepts of what is data and what is success and what does it mean to pursue equity? And of course, you know, brilliant innovative practices have existed for decades, right? And in both of our countries and classrooms all over, but we've kind of like dimmed the light on those places. And it's time I think to shift that to really amplify the innovation 
and to flip the dashboard, right? To think about success and equity and data and knowledge in a really different paradigm, one that is um, abundance-based, rooted in abundance, right? And possibility. So if you had a want, what would be the first thing you would wish for? <sighs> Such a great question. I ask this question of people all the time when I'm gathering street data. I, I think for me, there's something about the sacredness of space, of the learning environment. And what came to mind with that question is I would wish for a beautiful, nourishing classroom environment for every learner, characterized by circles, rich and layered and interesting texts and materials, and the opportunity to really use one's voice for things that matter. Awesome, uh, Shane Safir. It's uh, such a pleasure to have you on the show. So I know you have uh, other things to do. So thanks a lot for stopping by our show. And uh, I know um, lots of Norwegian people are going to love this episode. So thanks a lot. It's so honored to meet you all. And I look forward to my first trip to Norway in the in the near future. Yeah, thank you, Shane. <laughs> yeah, You're welcome yeah. anytime. <laughs> welcome anytime. It's bad to school in Norway.